0: We're not merely talking about Antiochus such that we're saying, well, what does this have to do with me today? But we're seeing how Antiochus and his overthrow um, comforts us, whatever totalitarianism we may face. But even in the midst of that, we're promised this will only be for a period.
1: Welcome to Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss everything from Reformed theology, cultural issues, and all things seminary. This is episode 72, and I'm your host, Jared Luchibor, Director of Marketing. Thank you for joining us. In today's episode, Reverend Andrew Compton, professor of Old Testament studies, takes the principles of prophecy that he's spoken to at this point in our previous episodes, such as telescoping, reading biblical imagery, in uh, what he describes as high def, and applies it to another Old Testament text in the book of Daniel, chapter 8, where he'll look at the issue of typology and the oppressor of God's people, Antiochus Epiphanes.
0: Well, one final, uh, I guess, little dip in the pool here in Daniel, <laughs> whatever we want to call this, <laughs> <clears throat> you know, because we've been talking about about prophecy and biblical literacy and being able to appreciate the, this high-def character. Um, you know, uh, last time we, we spent a little bit of time talking about some hermeneutical issues of the telescoping technique. We're actually going to see some of that at work here, this telescoping technique in Daniel 8. Um, but also we talked about that prophetic idiom where the where the the new heavens and the new earth are described under the imagery of ancient Israel and its theocratic institutions of temple and sacrifice and purity and etc. But we are uh, looking a bit uh, we we then we then kind of dove into to Daniel chapter seven and tried to take in this reality, these four beasts uh, that are attacking the church throughout the church age, and how, no matter how strong they look, and even how victorious they look, they will ultimately be overthrown uh, by the arrival of the Ancient of Days uh, and the Son of Man, and that the oppression the church faces under these kinds of tyrannical governments um, pales in comparison to the forever, forever, and ever that uh, they will enjoy, uh, they will enjoy inheriting the kingdom. But I thought we could look at now is is chapter 8, because chapter 8 is kind of interesting, maybe i'll just dive in and start reading some of this. what what we're going to notice is this. we again we have we have animals, although these are a little more traditional animals in chapter 8. we have horns again. uh but the horns are configured a little differently and they're they're connected to different animals. uh so it would seem, although there's been some debate about that. Uh, but then we're going to look at this one little horn and go back and compare him to the horn of chapter 7. and i think this is going to give us a little bit of insight into into how we have God working out history according to his sovereign plan. So, Daniel 8, uh, verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. There he's referring to Daniel 7. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam, and I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram butting westward, northward, southward, and no other beasts could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue him from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west, over the surface of the whole earth, without touching the ground and the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So we've got this ram and this goat starting off, and again, the last monsters represented kings and their kingdoms. What well, we're going to find later in the chapter, the, um, the angel will explicitly identify the ram and the goat with known kingdoms. Um, but at least, we're already kind of prepped to experience that, though. But now we have horns coming up which um in the last chapter there were the 10 horns mm-hmm. um which had a bit more figurative of an element well, now we have 4 horns which on the one hand would would kind of strike us as well this this may be figurative as well again the four points of the compass uh the way the horns um you know play out in in terms of their power and the directions right it might just be a totality although as we're going to find later in the chapter each of those horns is described with four known kingdoms. And so um, so we kind of have to wait and see, but already our, our literary minds are starting to process this stuff. But then chapter, uh, verse 9, Out of one of them, one of those horns, came a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. Which is, um, we're describing the Holy Land, the, mm-hmm. the, the land of, of uh, where Jerusalem is. This horn grew up to the host of heaven, and caused some of the hosts and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. Now, right away you hear this, and you're, you're starting to think cosmically. I mean, right, th- this horn reaches to the heavens, to the host, to the angelic beings there, and actually starts to cause stars to fall and trample them down. And this becomes something of a, of a conundrum for interpreters. Um, I guess we'll say more about that uh, in a bit. It says, it even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the hosts. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. So here it seemed, he's commander of the host, seems to be uh, another epithet for God himself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some have, have uh, narrowed that down to, to our Lord Jesus Christ in his um, preincarnate incarnate uh, form. But I mean, it, we at least have God as the commander being you, you know, invoked in those, those terms. And so look at this horn that's, that's even trying to, to storm the gates of heaven. On account, verse 12, and on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn, along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply? while well, the transgression causes horror, so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings then the holy place will be properly restored. And now we're we're talking about a holy place, and we're hearing about sacrifice, and it seems clear that there's a description then of the temple, that this horn, whoever this is, we haven't really been let in on it yet, is going to wreak havoc in the uh, ongoing operations of the temple, even as it is trying to storm the gates of heaven and take down God himself. Um, But we're given a time gap here for 2,300 evenings, mornings then the holy place will be properly restored. Here's another one of these interesting numbers, 2,300. What does that refer to? We mentioned last time a number of symbolic numbers, three and a half years, time times and half a time. um, 42 months. 42 months. uh, 1,260 days. Yeah, that's, that's it, right? Some of these kinds of terms that will get traction elsewhere, like the book of Revelation picks up on a number of those terms and helps to further apply them to the whole epoch in which we live now, from Christ's first, from his ascension to his second coming. Um, But we don't find anything with that 2,300 evenings that fits as well. uh, Evenings and mornings. So this starts to cause uh, a bit of interpretive challenge, although again, in a moment we get a little more information and it starts sounding like a historical period that historians know of and are familiar with. But at the end of this, the holy place is properly restored and this stood out too in the last chapter we talked about these beasts that were like hybrids of of creatures that were like anti-creational the last time well i should say the most one of the most prominent places where we read of evening and morning notice it didn't say morning and evening mm. which is kind of how you'd ordinarily speak of a day morning and evening morning and evening last time we heard of evenings and mornings was genesis 1 yeah and so they're, they're, all of a sudden, our, our, at least our minds are being drawn toward this kind of cosmic imagery with this individual, right? There's evening and morning that is, that is marking the days just as at creation. And, and here he is challenging the creator, trying to be a creator of his own, um, trying to regulate uh, worship. But in verse 15, then, you can see we're just kind of trying to forge ahead but also trying to stop and, and smell the flowers, as it were, each, each time we get to some of these details. But verse 15, just like Daniel 8, Daniel 9, or I'm sorry, just like Daniel 7, Daniel 8 also is broken up into kind of two cycles, you know, the, the dream, and then it's stated again with more details. Well, same thing here. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man, And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Ulai, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now, what does that refer to? Usually, when we think of the time of the end, we think of the end of all things, the consummation of history. And, um, well... More to say about that, but at least look what this is orienting us to. Cosmic things, right? Evening, morning, creational, stars of heaven, heavens, the hosts of heaven, and now we have the time of the end. I mean, our reading is being primed to think of all this cosmically, but there's more to this story than what appears. We're going to get kind of a... I I wouldn't say we're going to get pulled back in a moment, but we're going to see that all of this cosmic universal imagery is actually going to be employed for a much smaller period of history. So I'm kind of giving away the end, but here we go. (laughs) Verse 18, Now while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright. He said, Behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. So we're hearing of the, the, the indignation. Which, uh, earlier, we heard of the, um, you know, of the, uh, in verse 12, on account of transgression, uh, the host will be given over to the horn. People have, have debated, whose transgression? The horns? The people? You know, the people of God, who are clearly sinners. That's why they need God's mercy, as depicted in the temple. Um, but somehow, all, all this event fits into God's anger. Um, God's wrath is playing out. But here's this period of indignation, um, that will go for a time until an appointed time or an end. Verse twenty then says the ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. Oh, wow! Thank goodness, <laughs> finally oh. something to hang our finally. hang our coat on, right? <laughs> but isn't that interesting? The last chapter we didn't get that, although we did get the uh, the the bear who was kind of reached up on on uh, one side higher than the other, which may relate to the two horns. Um, And so there's different uh, different ways people articulate that. Here, here's our first thing, right? The, the ram is Media and Persia. Okay. Verse 21, the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king, meaning Alexander the Great. As yeah. every student of history and every watcher of the movie Alexander will know. Verse 22 goes on then and says, The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms, which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. Well, remember earlier we said, well, potentially four horns is going to be symbolic, like ten. But at what we know about uh, Alexander's breakup of his kingdom is it was broken up into four regions, four sub-kingdoms, mm-hmm. um, you know, each of his generals kind of took an area, a region, and there was some infighting that ended up happening between them in in the coming centuries. But but we have we're seeing that these four horns are being attributed to these specific kingdoms. Now I don't think that I don't think it removes it from having a a, a symbolic cosmic kind of implication. Because uh, uh, we'll talk in a moment about typology, how God works history out according to his plan to illustrate his broader purposes. And there's microcosms. I mean, the whole history of Israel is one miniature microcosm of the whole history of of the cosmos, in a sense. And so we have a lot of examples like that. And and so even with the four horns that were four specific kingdoms, I, I think we're still... You still see how we're being invited to not simply imagine the four kingdoms following alexander's kingdom but how we're now being invited to conceive of those as more than meets the eye right verse 3 will go on then says or 23 says in the latter period of their rule when the transgressors have run their course a king will arise insolent and skilled in intrigue his power will be mighty but not by his own power and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. So you can see all of a sudden, he is, they're, they're, what we saw about stars earlier is now being linked in with, with the holy people, the people of God. Um, the Jewish people dealing with the aftermath of, of Alexander's kingdom and its breakup. And we're learning more about this one horn and his identity Through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. He will magnify himself in his heart and will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. The vision of the evenings and mornings, which has been told, is true, but keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. And it ends with another typical response to visionary prophecy, I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Although interestingly, he got up and carried on the king's business. A lot of a lot of uh, theologians and interpreters have have used this as an example of Christian ordinary Christian vocation in mm-hmm. the midst of of even anticipation of, of God's mighty acts. Um, what's this all getting at? After the breakup of Alexander's kingdom into the four kingdoms of the generals. Among the Seleucids, Se- Seleucids, Seleucids? Seleucids? Yeah, yeah, me and my pronunciation, right. Among the Seleucids uh, arose Antiochus the Fourth, who went by the moniker uh, Epiphanes, made manifest. Yeah. Here is one who saw himself as as a deity made manifest. And what does he do? He 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 threatened the temple. He, uh, I mean the the apocryphal book of One Maccabees um describes his reign in in significant detail and and historians actually are quite confident in the uh, historical picture provided by Maccabees, although usually people correct uh believe believe that the sequence of purifying the temple what what would Jews celebrate hanukkah today in terms of that whole purification of the temple as that relates to the death of of uh, Antiochus. One Maccabees seems to show the temple being purified and later Antiochus dying, whereas two Maccabees, mm-hmm. another apocryphal book, shows them happening reverse. Okay. Antiochus dying. And most historians say that, that uh one Maccabees seems to be mixing the events up a little as part of its narrative portrayal. If you're really looking for the bare history, as it were, two Maccabees is more accurate on that point. But Anyway, I'm just trying to make a point that one Maccabees, for many of our listeners who aren't used to reading the Apocrypha, um, you may be not sure what to make of these. Um, it's interesting how even the Belgic Confession talks about the Apocrypha and does say the church can make use of these. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so, again, we have, to be, we have to be careful not to sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't believe they're canonical. Uh, however, they are uh, books representing the, the history of the Jewish people. And so, a very valuable thing uh, to look at. But while you read about Antiochus's persecution of the Jewish people, and I mean, he—this uh, is totalitarianism. I mean, he—he—he he, uh, he, he kills people. He violates the sanctuary. Um, it's interesting if people were found with books of the Torah, books of, of the Scripture, he would have them killed. He tried to eradicate the Torah in service of Hellenizing and creating this new sophisticated worldview that this these these people with their old-fashioned religious ideas about the Lord needed to get rid of and get on board the new trend of Hellenism. Um, Changing dates and times mm-hmm, and all that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. 1 Maccabees uh, 1 verse 51 talks about he appoints inspectors over the people who are to go and make sure they're doing the right things. In 2 verse 15, uh, they're called the king's officers who were enforcing the apostasy. I mean, right away this sounds like the KGB <laughs> Right? This yeah, is totalitarianism. Right. And and we have this Antiochus uh, trying to accomplish all these things and and causes great damage to a great time of turmoil and, and death and persecution for God's people. But it only lasts for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Again, I don't know that the point is to count those exact days, but that time does show it just short of seven years. Mm-hmm. It's not like a full sabbatical seven-year cycle like Israel would celebrate. Not even that is what is given over to Antiochus to persecute the people. And at the end, the holy place is restored. God does, uh, God does forgive his people. God does care for them, provide for their needs uh, through the atoning work of his Son. And yet, is that all this is about? Because in Daniel 7, we also heard of a horn. And yet, a horn that would be active throughout history, you know, that would be doing the bidding of that fourth kingdom, oppressing the saints. And it seems to me what we have here is yes, in one sense, different figures. Daniel 7, a horn that will be uprooted at the end of the age. Daniel 8, a horn that will live for a few years from 175 BC to what, 163, I think, where Antiochus's dates, and then be uprooted. And yet, but we see something of a relationship at work because God God orchestrates history in ways that show his reign and his victory. so that even in this microcosm, here's a horn trying to storm the gates of heaven but is thwarted. And God's people are reminded that on the on the bigger stage, like on the main stage of the event, um, there's another horn who's trying to do the same thing and yet he'll be brought. To a complete destruction as well, this is almost like just a a a um a playing out for for uh for the sake of the Jewish people under the time of the Maccabees a playing out of what God will ultimately be doing throughout history right um so that antiochus falls he he's he's killed or dies I think there's some debate about that how he dies exactly. Um, but but he dies, the temple 's restored, but of course, history goes on, and there 's other persecutions of god 's people. But that period of oppression leading to deliverance serves as a microcosm for uh, serves as a way to give comfort to say, and a better day is coming when the greater horn you know this this uh, this antichrist figure of Daniel seven will ultimately be thrown down. Mm-hmm. And remember, the New Testament preps us to expect iterations of this Antichrist throughout history. You know, John says many Antichrists have come, indeed Antichrist is coming. We see here, too, um, this sort of coalescing of imagery, this high-def imagery, historical referentiality, as it zeroed in on Antiochus, but also about how history is playing out against God's sovereign covenantal dealings. Um, so that we're not we're not merely talking about Antiochus, such that we're saying, "Well, what does this have to do to me to with me today?" but we're seeing how Antiochus and his overthrow um, comforts us whatever totalitarianism we may face, and many people have faced it throughout history, many parts of the world, totalitarian governments are micromanaging people's lives and persecuting Christianity. some have even suggested that here in North America, we're entering into something of a, a time of soft totalitarianism where where tech is more and more exposing our lives to be observed and controlled. But even in the midst of that, we're promised this will only be for a period and that God has not forgotten his promises and that even when things look utterly defeated, they're not. For the holy place will be restored. In this case, the whole of the cosmos as God's temple will be perfectly purged and consummated the end of time
1: consider what reverend compton has spoken on next time if you find yourself reading biblical prophecy read it slowly read it carefully read it in high def we're thankful for reverend compton and his work here at the seminary keep him in your prayers as he continues to labor in writing his dissertation on ezekiel Well, joining me next time for three sessions is Dr. Alan Strange, Professor of Apologetics and Church History, where he'll speak to the lure of rationalism, theological false dichotomies, and then, if you know Dr. Strange, of course, the spirituality of the church. For more episodes, you can find us on our website and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reformed Seminaries Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchabor. Till next time.